turn in the Bible to uh, two passages, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The words will also be on the screen. First of all, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, this is Paul writing to the Ephesian Christians. Notice that this is a Christian letter, and he's writing to people who were slaves and workmen in in that part of the world. But he begins in verse 21 by saying simply, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we move down to verse 5 of chapter 6, where he, that's the heading now, submit to one another. Now he's down into chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And then from 2 Thessalonians, this is a little bit different kind of a passage, but it speaks to some of the same issues. We're talking about God's call to work this morning. So from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, We gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, but are busy bodies. Since people, such people, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, last week we spent uh, some time tracing our way through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation outlining how the plan of God for his world kind of is worked through all of Scripture and all the world. What God has done and is doing and will do as a result of his love for his world. If you remember back last, that far, last Sunday, you'll remember that we pointed to theological concepts like creation, the fall, redemption, 
and restoration. Those are the big the theological terms that are used to describe what God is doing throughout history. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave what theologians call the creation mandate. The creation mandate is given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that says God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then again in Genesis 2 verse 15, we're told that God personally planted a garden. Can you imagine that? That God is the designer of this garden. He's the planter. He's the one who waters. He cares for his garden in such a way. Can you imagine the pristine beauty of that place? Gloria and I enjoy walking through Meyer Gardens on occasion. What I like best about Meyer Garden is that when I go through those very clean places that the gardeners who work so diligently to make sure they're, they're pruned and treated just correctly, that I, I have, one, I think, once in a while, just a quick glimpse of what Eden must have been like. God's garden that he planted and he gave to Adam and Eve but God's garden didn't take care of itself. Like Meyer Garden, it also needs workers, people who are invested in the care of that garden and rule over it. I often think that's, that's the way God wanted his people to treat his world. And so God took the man, the Bible said, and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Now, I suppose that since God did all the initial landscaping and the planting and watering, he could have maintained it by himself. It wasn't beyond God to take care of what he had created. But God intentionally gave this to Adam and Eve as their assignment, their work duty, so that they might further appreciate what God had made. They were to name the plants and animals. They were to categorize them into the various uh, phyla and classifications. They were to understand creation. They were to develop creation as, as a part of what God had made. And we were, as human beings, to finish God's good work, in a sense. That's how things were supposed to go. That was God's plan. If we could only imagine what a delightful world this would be if that plan would have worked out perfectly. That all of creation, the, the boundaries of Eden would have just expanded to cover the entire world. And God's people would have been the caretakers, the people who were loving and caring for the world and loving God the way we ought to. Every square inch of God's creation would have been claimed for his glory. Imagine a world like that. But such is not the case. The fall happened, and we know that sin has done a great deal of damage to our world. Creation now groans in anticipation of his coming again. But God did not give up on creation, and he will not surrender his creation to the devil. I often think about that. But sometimes we think, well, God doesn't 
really care about this world. He's just going to write it all off as though it doesn't really matter. But no, no, that would be a defeat for God. That would be a win for Satan. And so God is saying, no, I love the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to redeem and to reclaim and to restore this world to what it was intended to be. The father is at work, said Jesus, and I am at work as well. Jesus came to do this work of redemption. Now we get a preview of what he will do when Jesus was here on this earth. The preview shows us that he, he healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He walked on water. He calmed the seas. And he turned the most ordinary water into the most delightful wine for the feast. All of that, you see, points forward. Those miracles of Jesus were not just events that are not to be looked at and, and understood in the light of creation ordinance renewed. So we have this Jesus working so that we might have a new understanding. And now restoration not only means the forgiveness of my and your sins, but it also means now that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And now once again, the call to work has been issued for all of us. We are now once again, as Paul will say, we are co-workers with God in his world, working to restore creation order. Because God is at work, we too must work. And that's the highest motivation for us as Christians. We are, as co-workers in God's world, co-workers with God. Important stuff. Now, this means that our work is important. It's work that God intends for us to enjoy. I don't know if you as a parent or grandparent ever take, had taken one of your children or grandchildren and asked them to help you with a project in the house or in the garden. And uh, your child, your grandchild, is working right alongside of you and planting, pruning, whatever, and you realize that you could have done this work a whole lot faster yourself. You would have been far better off just doing it the right way the first time. But the point is not that, that you have to get this work done. But the point is that you are trying to infuse into that child an understanding of the beauty of creation order. And the way this is a blessing to them as they see and as they participate in the creation itself. And when the plants come up in the garden or when you eat the plant together, this is a celebration of the good work that has been done. And this is what God intends for us as his children, you see. Even though he could have done it better himself, he could have done it faster by the spoken word, but he calls us to be his agents of blessing. And he wants us to know the joy that it comes from work. So without meaningful work to do, we become something less than God intended. And that's really what this letter to the Thessalonians is all about. The reason I read from 2 Thessalonians is to show you this one point, that Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica were written for the purpose of talking about, mostly about work. It has to do with people who were thinking about eternity. And eternity had so gripped those people's minds that they were beginning to say to themselves, you know, I don't know why I even go to work on Monday morning. 
I, I don't think it's necessary that I fix the roof that's leaking because well, Jesus is coming very soon and very soon. So I, I'm not going to do any of those kinds of things. I'll just sit and wait for Jesus' return. Now, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is saying, you don't understand. You don't understand, first of all, you don't know when he's coming again. And secondly, you don't understand the importance of the work that you're doing. Because without meaningful work to do, you become not just busy, but you become busy bodies. And, and you're going around stirring up all kinds of dissemination and trouble because you don't have anything better to do. And Paul is saying, that's the trouble. Your idle and disruptive attitudes are making you a person who is a busybody. We need to work. Work is important for us. Paul's reprimand to the Thessalonian Christians, these are Christians, but they're not working. And his reprimand is pretty strong. He says to them, if you have this no work, no work approach to life, if you will not work, you shouldn't eat. One of the early church fathers, Jerome, put it this way, engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. Engage in some occupation so the devil may always find you busy. Well, that proverb has been modified to say idle hands are the devil's workshop. You've heard that probably from a parent or two. Now, of course, there are lots of reasons why people are not able to be working, and we understand that. There are limitations and all the rest. But if it's laziness, if it is a misunderstanding of the value of work in the world, then Paul has some very strong words. God has some strong words for us this morning. I'm a huge proponent of work projects for the church. Over the years, throughout the ministry in several two at least different churches, uh, we would spend at least uh, one time or maybe twice a year going on a surf project. And we would take half young people and half older people, and we would put them together into uh, work teams, and we would go out to some place that was, had a disaster, and we would respond to that disaster with Christian love and charity and hard work. We realized that as we were sending these groups out, that we needed to inform them that this was not a vacation. This was not going to be just basking in the sun down in, in Louisiana someplace. This was hard work, and you should expect that. And so as we sent them off, I would give them this small sermon. I would say, I've got four texts for you to think about and to use as your motto for this week. And then the young people would groan, oh, here comes a sermon. And I would say, well, listen, just hear, listen to these four texts. The first one comes from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 7. And this is when King Saul was still a humble guy. He had been anointed by Samuel to be the king, the first king in Israel. And Saul says to Samuel, I don't even know what a king is supposed to do. What do kings do in Israel? And Samuel wisely said, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And then when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you do whatever your hand finds to do. I love that line. Do whatever your hand finds to do. And that's the way this is supposed to work, you see. Go and do whatever you see needs to be done. 
So I would say to the young people, if you see something, do something. My father would always say to me, don't just stand there. Look for something to do and then go do it. That became my motto for growing up. The second verse was rather self-explanatory. It's from Philippians 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. And we would say to the groups as they went out to do their work, we don't want to hear any grumbling, no complaints, because we're all doing the same dirty work. Colossians 3, verse 23, gave us our third motto to keep in mind, that whatsoever you do, work at it with all your heart. Don't be half-hearted. Get in there and do your very best. Don't worry about your hair, your makeup, or whatever. Just do the work with all your heart. And the fourth, and perhaps the most important of all of these commandments, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So as the week of service would unfold, we would often hear even students saying to one another and leaders as well, so what can you find for your hands to do? Meaning, don't just stand there, go do something. Or maybe they would say, you guys are working with all your heart. And then when we would come to the end of the day or the end of the week, we would celebrate the fact that we would have worked today or this week for the glory of God. Whether people appreciate it well enough or not, it's to God's glory that we have done these things. And we try to develop what I call a hands-on work theology. You work as a servant of the Lord in his kingdom. Secondly, work helps us to appreciate the value of community. The way God designed it, you and I, whether we realize it or not, are deeply dependent on our community around us and those who have gone before us centuries ago. The work that others have done have been a huge benefit to us as we do our work. We illustrated that one time with a youth group meeting one of the serve projects, we would say to this, to this group, we need a volunteer to build a stool, the simplest stool imaginable. And that would just be two pieces of board nailed together, kind of like an old milk stool. And we had this young guy who was very ambitious. He said, oh, I can do that. We say, okay, all right, great. So you have to build this stool all by yourself. No help from anyone else, from anywhere else. Oh, yeah, he said. So we said, well, how are you going to do this work? And he said, well, I'm going to think I'll go get a couple two-befores. We said, no, no, can't do that. Those two-befores have been cut down and milled by someone else. Oh, yeah. He said, well, then I'll just go get a saw and I'll cut my own tree. No, no, you can't because the saw has already been made by someone else. You have to do this all by yourself. And then he began to understand, oh, this is going to be impossible because unless I break off a branch and somehow connect it without any other tool or any other uh, screw or bolt or nut or anything, I can't, I can't build a, I, the simplest of things. And we said, that's exactly the way it is in our world. You are building 
on the build, building work of other people who have gone before you, the people who have invented, the people who have modified, the people who have innovated, all these creation things have been your way by which you live today with success in your work. We need to understand that as we live out our lives as workers in God's kingdom. We understand that we live in a whole community of people who are our co-workers who have prepared for us tools and events that we can use to work. We can be productive because we are part of a community. That leads to the next point. As Christians, we understand that God's call to work gives dignity to all work. This is the text that we take from Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is saying, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, here's what Paul is uh, sometimes accused of, of being a proponent of slavery. As a matter of fact, in the Civil War times, the, the states down south, you quoted this very text saying, see, Paul is in favor of slavery. Well, without going into it very deeply, you have to understand that what Paul is talking about is a slavery that is totally different than the kind of slavery today, where people go off and they, they capture people and they drag them into some, some uh, works experience and, and they force them to work. That is not the kind of slavery that was found in the Greco-Roman world. In those days, a slave was probably a voluntary relationship. They had probably gotten themselves into some sort of financial bind, and as a result of that, they indentured themselves to another family, and they said, we will work for you as a servant, a slave, and that was the term, so that we can get finally out of the trouble we're in. So the normal time of slavery was a 10 to 15-year commitment. At the end of that period of time, the money that they had actually saved up while they were in slavery could be used to start over again in their lives. So Paul is talking about this kind of this kind of relationship with those who are called slaves and those who are called the Christian community. Now there were Christian slaves, lots of them, because the slaves in those days realized that they had a desperate need for God, for Jesus in their lives. And so they were the ones who probably joined the church much more quickly than the powerful and the rich. So Paul is writing in Ephesians to these families. Notice their households. And in this household, you have husband and wife. You have fathers and children, mothers and children. And you have slaves and masters. He starts off, as we read from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, saying, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the big umbrella that he's putting over all the rest of his his teaching. And he says, first of all, then now, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that's, that's a whole different dynamic than what people Im imply from that or infer from it. The idea is that the husband gives himself up for his wife and his family as Christ gave himself up for his church. And then the wife would say, well, yeah, she's gonna, he's going to do that for me. I will, I will submit to that. So then he says to the children, now, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't, don't frustrate them by your commanding uh, authority. 
but show submission and love in the same way as Christ would do for you. And then he says, slaves, obey your masters as, you were, as though you were working for the Lord. You see, not just when your master is watching over you so that you have to do the right thing at that time, but do it even though they're not looking because you know that you're not just working for your master, you're working for the Lord. Now, this is a radical new way of thinking about work in that culture as well, that all work, whenever it's done, is done to the glory of God. Now, we could, we could change, we could translate the word slaves and masters into employers and employees. We could do that very easily, I think. Employees, obey your employer as you would obey Christ. Obey them not just to win their favor when they're looking at you, but as servants of Christ, doing your work to the best of your ability. So the Lord will reward each one of you for the work that you are doing, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're the master, employer, or the employee. So there it is. Do whatever your hand finds to do. Do it without grumbling or complaining. Do it to the best of your ability and do it to the glory of God. And then you have a work theology that really works. All work, all work can be done to the glory of God. And so all workers should be treated with respect. Martin Luther was probably one of the best examples of a person who had studied the attitude of work in his generation. In the Middle Ages, of course, the church had categorized various levels of work, some of which were honorable and some were dishonorable. Of course, the most honorable was, was preachers and teachers. And, and so they were the people who were considered to be workers in God's kingdom. The rest of the workers they were nothing. But it was Martin Luther who said, you understand, you understand that the milkmaid who milks the cows every morning and afternoon is deserving of the same honor as your pastor. And he's saying, you understand that there is no such thing as a secular job because all work is done to the honor and glory of God. Luther read from Psalm 145, which says that God opens his hand and feeds his people. Psalm 145 also says that, that God protects the gates of the city. And Luther was saying, how does God do that? How does he feed his people? Well, he said it has to be because workers are working in God's kingdom to create food. And workers are working in God's kingdom to create security for his people. They, they work in government jobs. They, they work in, in needed affairs of the state in order to protect and defend. You see, God uses people to do his work in his world. And so there are no jobs that are without that simple understanding that the milkmaid should be honored for her work the man who delivers the milk to your door should be honored for his carrying of the work. And all of that is God's work. A more modern equivalent of that might be, I was thinking of the worker who cleans the toilets 
and the rest stops along the interstate highway system. I think to myself, is there a job worse than that? And yet, you realize that if nobody is cleaning those toilets, we're all going to die, you see. And the garbage man who picks up the garbage every week from the front of our homes, if nobody is picking up the garbage, we're going to die in a mountain of trash. Because the bathrooms and our yards and our world has to be maintained. And those people who do that work are doing valuable work. And so we have to treat those folks with as much dignity as we treat even those people who we think are doing honorable jobs. We do need a theology of work to carry with us. Sometimes we who have what we might call the top-tier jobs, we have a kind of a condescending and sneering attitude about those who do menial, simpler jobs. And this is wrong. It's dishonoring to God as well as it dishonors the workmen. As I often do, I was sitting in my car while Gloria was shopping at Meyer, waiting patiently. And I was watching as the, um, the parking lot man was pulling in carts from around the parking lot. It was a miserable day, the snow, the cold, the wind. And this poor guy was huddled in his parka and he was gathering these carts up and trying to get them organized so he could pull them back into the store. And I watched as, as a man in a BMW, no offense to BMW's owners, but this guy pulled up and he, he opened his window and he royally dismissed and emotionally undressed this poor guy who was trying to get the carts out of his way so that he could park in that particular parking spot. Now I thought to myself, this is a terrible dishonor for that poor guy who was only doing his job to the best of his ability and he was dishonored for doing it. I imagine what it would be like if he would just walk off the job. I have been in parking lots that look like that. Carts all over the place. Probably no carts left in the store for the shoppers to use. It would be totally dis dismaying and disorganized to the point where we can't live that way. And so the worker needs to be honored for his good work. Good work. Anyone who is doing a work that is helpful and is doing it to the best of their ability is a co-worker with God. And so we need to treat them with that kind of genuine respect. We Christians, as I said before, need a healthy theology of work. Not only did Martin Luther help us understand how to think about just maintaining the world that God has made, and he did a great job of helping us understand how that works, but there is another reformer named John Calvin who took it one step farther. And John Calvin was the one who said, not only are we to maintain, but we are to dress till and keep. We were to have dominion over the creation order. That means that we as creation people ought to think, how can this creation be improved? How can the, the sources that we find in the earth, the minerals, the, the ores, the, the, the special 
stuff that's in the earth can be mined out and, and put to use as a part of God's creation order, making improvements in God's world. And you see, that's, that's a whole new way of thinking about our job. Some of us are maintainers. That's good. Keep doing it to the best of your ability. Others of us are called to do that work of taking dominion over and investing in how do we make a world better, innovations, inventions. Imagine what a world would be like if we were still living with no one having taken dominion over creation, if no one dreamed of making life better. You sit in your living room sometime and just look around and you ask yourself the question, what is it that other people have made that I get to enjoy? And you'll see about every nook and cranny of your house, those who understood and have invented and have blessed the world by their work. William Deal has done a great deal of writing about work. He talks about the integration of faith and work, which is what we're talking about this morning. And he understood that even if you have a job that is tedious and boring, if you have this right theology of work, and you understand that no matter how grand or how small the work is that you're doing, if you do it with what Deal calls Christian competence, that means that we don't need to overthink our jobs, but we just need to understand that we do them to the best of our ability. So as Deal says, if you're a pilot, your job is to land the plane, you know? Land it smoothly. The, the, the riders in the plane do not need a bumpy approach to the airport. And so the idea is that we, as, as God's creation order people, are people who are concerned about doing the very best we can, whether you are a grocery cart jockey or a teacher. You know, see, I think teachers have a special job because it's not just you're teaching English or you're not teaching history, but you're teaching students. And you're asking the question, what does God want these students to become? How can I fashion and form them take dominion over even their own minds in the sense of treating them with that kind of encouragement to, to learn from God's world, to become the best workers they can be. And finally, that is what God calls all of us to do, whether we are in that maintaining position or we're in the development stage of life. The Christian employer needs to figure out how to give dignity to all his or her workers. We need to figure out how to find joy in our work. The farmer needs to figure out how to be a good example of a steward of his, his land. And finally, there is this. What we do as we work is all done under the watchful eye of God himself. I don't think we realize this enough to realize that the Bible teaches that there are spiritual realms and there are those who are the spiritual lovers of God and those who are the spiritual haters of God. And those angelic beings are watching this world. And as in the story of Job, Satan comes to God and says to Job, do you, you know that Job is only doing what he, what he does because he, you feed him so well. You treat him so good. You take that away and, and he'll just deny you to your face. 
There are always challenges to God's authority, God's love, his mercy, his grace by those who are watching from the angel world of evil. So, those who understand that know that there's never a point of time when our lives are not under observation. The Jewish builders understood this. When we were in Israel, we were shown uh, buildings that were built by the Greco-Roman world. And what they did when they built a foundation was they would just <clears throat> kind of scatter out the rubble that was underneath that had been built before and start building on that. And, uh, and they would say, you know, that's good enough. The Jewish people, however, would clear away the rubble. They would go all the way down to bedrock, and they would smooth out that land, and then they would cut stones that were precisely cut. They showed us stones that were under the foundations that you couldn't get a credit card stuck in yet today. And the, and the Greek and the Roman people would say, why? Why do you bother with doing something so carefully? It's all going to be underground anyway. No one sees it. And the Jewish leader would say, ah, but God sees. You see? God sees, and he is either honored or dishonored by the work that we do, the work of our hands, the work of our minds. All of it comes under God's control, and that world in life view of understanding God who searches our hearts and minds, even though our employer or our foreman, the people we work under, never bother to check the quality of our work, we work for a different purpose. We work for a different leader. And whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. And that's a Christian theology of work. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we hear what Paul said, that because we know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they have done. That we receive this understanding as well. To know, Father, that your, our work is always under your watchful eye. You not only see the work of our hands, but you know the attitude of our hearts. And Jesus, we understand that you gave us a perfect pattern to follow. A way by which we can work and serve, and love, and delight in the needs of others around us, and care for them in such a way that we perform your work here on this earth. And so we pray, God, that you will help us to understand our place in your world. Whether we're young or old, whether we have energy or we're running out of energy, we pray, God, that you will help us to use every day as a, as a gift to be used in your service. So bless us, we pray, and give us a clearer understanding of your great work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.